0: My name is Keith Beavers, and guys, I lost my voice a couple days ago, so this episode is going to sound a little bit different. Bear with me. What's going on, wine lovers from the VinePair Podcasting Network? This is the Wine One One Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers and I am the Tastings Director of VinePair. How you doing? How's my voice? Sound good? We are here. We are talking about the right bank. Is it really the right bank? Technically, yes. It's so much more. Let's do some history and understand it more. For a bunch of episodes, we've been talking about the Gironde, the estuary that dumps into the Atlantic and the left bank of that estuary, the Medoc, And that's where Bordeaux, the town, is. But as we move upriver from the estuary, as you probably listened to in the Bordeaux episode in season one, it splits off into two rivers the Dordogne to the north and the Garonne to the south this is this area is a bit away's from the Médoc it's just upriver or should i say further south and even though it's in somewhat proximity to the Médoc and even though it's all now part of the Bordeaux region what's known as the right bank of Bordeaux is a world apart from the left bank. It's here that it is thought that Ausonius, that ancient Roman poet we talked about, had his home. And it's this area that we don't see any of the manipulation or reclamation of land. The, The right bank, as we call it these days, is a natural... Rolling topography of gently rolling hills and plateaus filled with limestone, sand, gravel, and clay. And that combination of soils varies throughout this very large region. And as we talked about in that Bordeaux episode, we mentioned, you know, a lot of communes and a lot of sub-appellations that are on the right bank. But the most important could be Saint-Emilion, Pomerol, and to a lesser extent, but not really, Fransac. I mentioned Fransac in the beginning of this series about Charlemagne, kind of digging on that land. And speaking of Saint-Emilion, over the history of this particular area and what is now part of the Bordeaux region, it is one of the more significant towns in the area. Saint-Emilion is a somewhat landlocked, or was for a very long time, town. But before that, in the 8th century, it was a collection of caves hollowed out in a big cliff. And at some point, a fortified town was built on top of that. In the Middle Ages, this beautiful town relied... I mean, guys, it's beautiful. I have been to Saint-Emilion, and I can't explain how just charming... This little town is the downtown area, it's just out of this world. But this town relied primarily on a port town on the Dordogne called Pierre Fitte. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it played a very important role in shipping wines down the Dordogne because this area was making wine well before the Medoc was even established. And what's also interesting is that this town, Saint Emilion, was on the pilgrimage route to Santiago de Compostela in Spain which we've talked about in previous episodes. This is very this is what happens with any kind of towns that are on this route throughout history. They eventually develop faster than other places because of the constant traffic of people coming through. And because of that, Saint-Emilion is known for its hospitality. There's actually a guard called the Guard of Saint-Emilion that to this day is kind of part of this whole um, atmosphere of hospitality and activity in Saint-Emilion. And actually once a year, they're the ones that actually do a big ceremony and announce the harvest in the town. I've been to one of these ceremonies. They're phenomenal. They're very medieval. They're very cool. The thing about this part of Bordeaux is it's kind of similar to a lot of other wine regions in France in that they are small holdings almost farmer-like, not really even chateaus, but just vineyards and farms and wineries. Even though, of course, the Le- Grave and medoc it did have humble beginnings, but what became of it was very grand with architecture and properties and the trade, the system, very complicated trade system. Whereas in Saint-Emilion and its surrounding areas of Pomerol and Fronsac and many others, the largest of them was Chivot Blanc, which is in Pomerol, just on the edge of Saint-Emilion. And it clocks in at 40 hectares, whereas Lafitte is at least 100. So it kind of gives you an idea. In my mind, what really began to spark the light of the right bank was in the 13th century when a town called, a port town called Libourne, L-I-B-O-U-R-N-E was established on the Dordogne, just downriver from Piedfite. And it was larger. And at some point, this would become the headquarters of right bank wine. It was a a port town that represented mostly saint mignon Pomerol, and Françac. So the right bank had its own port town, and the left bank had its own port town. And even as Liborne developed into a wine headquarter for this part of Bordeaux, it could not compete with the activity of the buildup and evolution of the Médoc. Specifically, there was a small group of families called the Chardonnay, which is a reference to the area in which they did business, that kind of held sway over the British market. They were the ones that made the British happy with their wine, in that as wine became preferences began to change. They would actually manipulate wine sometimes with wines from Algeria and Spain to heft them up to send up to England. This is a time when Bordeaux wasn't really at what we know right now, which we talked about in previous episodes. It was always known that wine was being made over in the hinterland of Liborne. But because of the 1855 classification and its popularity, the Chardonnay focused primarily on the Medoc Makes sense. They wanted to make money. I mean, even though Liborne is a port town, the proximity of wine in Bordeaux on the Medoc was just immense. You just could not compete with that. And the Chardonnay, the merchants of Medoc, they didn't need to deal with Liborne. So as I said, I believe like that 13th century establishment of LeBorn kind of began everything for the right bank. But it wasn't until the late 19th century that really things started moving. And that's a that's a big gap in time. And I just find that fascinating that these places are in such proximity to each other, yet because of the availability Of waterways and lack thereof, one thrived while one wasn't stagnant, but just, you know, did not develop as fast on an international market. Because in 1860, something very cool happened in Liborne. It had developed to the point where the first railway was built from Liborne to Paris and beyond. Oh, wow. Okay. Here we go. Now, this is where wines from the right bank, they didn't get onto the British market now. They weren't, the, 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 the Medoc and the Chardonnay, they were doing their thing. The Libournay, which is now the word used for the wines of Saint-Emilion, Pomerol, Fronsac, and to a lesser point, Le de Pomerol. The Libournay wines now had the ability to be traded within France. Paris. Before this, Paris was mostly drinking Burgundian wines, beer, and cider. So this is a very exciting moment for the Libornais, or the wines in the right bank. I mean, from Paris, this was the railway to Bordeaux, or the Bordeaux area. You see, when you look at a map of the right bank, you'll see that Saint-Emilion is very isolated. It is a very landlocked town. And just getting wines from around this area to the river is already kind of a pain. But then you have to, you have to deal with the, the Chardonnay you know, business on the estuary getting into the Atlantic. So now it was just get your wine to the train, get it on the train to go to Paris. That's pretty exciting. And in 1867, this is also very fascinating, the Universal Expedition of 1855 was not the only one that ever happened. There was also one in 1867. And this is where the Libournay wines of Saint-Emilion and Pomerol and Fronsac and surrounding areas were showcased at the Universal Expedition. So history doesn't talk about it much, but these wines in the right bank also had their moment in Paris at a Universal Expedition, just like in the 1855 classification. But... They didn't have the very elaborate system of commerce that the Maydoc had at the time. Another thing that's not talked about much is the fact that these wines were actually winning prizes left and right. And basically, France was theirs. The right bank supplied wine to Paris and the rest of France and beyond, even into Belgium. Because think about it. When we're talking about the history of the Madoc, we never talk about Paris because the the Maydoc merchants only wanted the British market. They basically ignored the Parisians, which is just wild. And this was great for a wine region that was a complete contrast to the Madoc, where the Maydoc had very large estates, um, they had grand architecture. Um some of the Proprietors were not even from the area. They were from Paris, like the Rothschilds were a banking family from Paris. The Libornais had small properties. Like I said, Cheval, Cheval Blanc is only 40 hectares. And they were owned by local families. And while the Medoc and the Bordeaux market had a very elaborate system with intermediaries and proprietors and merchants and brokers and of the such, the Libournay. Kind of, not literally, but they basically sold door to door. I mean, they would sell at markets, at fairs. Even though there was a train route to Paris, that's still how they did their business. But then here comes the next spark that shone a light on this area. This energy in the Librenais of sort of local merchants and fairs and markets, it attracted a lot of entrepreneurs because there's a lot of... Room for improvement here, and the ground was fertile for kind of PR or marketing or their own kind of merchant class. And this is really cool as Lee Bourne developed, there was an immigrant class from a department in what is now Nouvelle Aquitaine region, the whole region we've been talking about, a department called Correz. And there, they would come. Downriver to Liborne to find work, to find a new life, whatever. And one of those families was the Mouix family, M O U E I X. And in the 1930s, a member of that family, Jean Pierre Mouex, would almost single handedly become the number one marketing man family of the Liborne. And it's the work of well, it's his work and his son's work that helped to define what the right bank is today. For example, in the 1950s, he began marketing for Petrus. At the time, Petrus was not unknown, but not as known as it is today. And it was owned by um, a lady named Madame Lubat, her reputation in the history of this area, people call her fiery or I don't know, whatever she, but basically she was just a business owner. She was a business owner and she wanted to make money and she was very ambitious. And when they, when he first started marketing for her in the fifties, he, you know, I can imagine their meeting when they're having a glass of wine. He's like, so how much do you want to sell your wines at? She came up with a very, very premium price. She actually demanded it. And what's so Great about this is Jean Pierre didn't blink. He's like, all right, let's do it. And at this moment in Le Bournet Right Bank history, this is when the Moex family, Jean Pierre primarily, would begin to attach the family name to premium wine or vice versa. For example, after this collaboration or partnership with Petrus. Every property this family would market, if their name was attached to the label, meaning if they were working with that winery, they could demand a premium price. And what ended up happening is, to this day, what's really wild is wines like Petrus fetch higher prices than any of the first growths of the Medoc. Yeah. This set the Moex family on a path to success. It started really increasing the um, exposure of Saint-Emilion and Pomerol to the point where in 1955, Saint-Emilion started their own classification system. And I have all the details for that in the Bordeaux episode in season one. But one thing to note about this classification system and the kind of energy it brought to this area This is the first region in France to require all wines to be tasted before sale to make sure they truly represented the region in which the wines were being made. How cool is that? There are consortiums all over Europe in every region of Europe that does this, but this is the first region in France to actually do this. And it makes sense because they were competing with the Medoc. And this was an absolute rivalry. And to make things even cooler, <laughs> not cooler, but like this really intensified it. In 1956, there was a major frost and it depleted a ton of vineyards, which depleted the amount of land under vine, which depleted the yield. But in doing so, with all this activity and energy going around, it started demanding higher prices because of that lack of basically supply and demand is what we're talking about right now. All of this set the Moex empire, I don't know if it was an empire, but the business really thrived. And in 1973, when there was a major economic crash, the second biggest crash since the Great Depression, the only other one was in 2008, the Moex family was doing fine. They actually were able to survive that. And I say that because the Chardonnay... The merchant class of the Medoc were obliterated. One family was even found guilty of fraud it was it was actually it was very public and it was embarrassing and it was it was it was bad now going into the 1980s a lot of the estate these estates in the Medoc were kind of on their own and this is probably another podcast episode, but like the 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 state of wine in Europe up until the 1980s, some places weren't doing so well, quality-wise. And this didn't help the Bordelais at all. So it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of messy. You know, you have Bordeaux doing great. It has a couple hiccups. Centimillon, the of the Pomerol, this whole area is starting, the right bank is starting to kind of come up. And in the 1990s, this, something else happened that was very interesting. There is a winemaker called Le Pan, And in 1979, the wine they produced became known as Garagiste wine, which is wine made at a very small scale where you have absolute control over everything you're doing. And it expresses itself in different ways. And because of its sort of revolutionary Re- not not revolutionary, rebellious nature, it kind of gained steam, and people are like, oh my gosh, the garagiste in Le Pen eventually became very popular. The prices were out like talk about out in the galaxy because of the small production rate. And this increased the um excitement and focus on Liburnet or the right bank. At some point, the Garagis thing kind of faded off somewhere in the 2000s, but that was a big moment for this area. And now, because of all these little sparks, the right bank is, or has, arrived. It has its own legacy. It has its own story that is separate from the Medoc, but it's all the same Bordeaux region. Ah, It's just wild. Okay, before my voice completely goes away, I'm going to end here. And next week, we're going to dive into Saint-Emilion. We're going to dive into Pomerol, Fransac, Le Lain de Pomerol, and talk about why those places are special. Let's talk next week. I'm going to drink some tea and honey. Vine Pair Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout-out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating vine pair and i mean big shout out to danielle Grinberg, the art director of vine pair for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast also darby seaside for the theme song listen to this and i want to thank the entire vine pair staff for helping me learn something new every day see you next week